The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His blood that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we begin to take a look at the central claim and the cornerstone to Christianity. We pointed out that even outside of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is an issue for which the answer for every man, woman, and child bears eternal consequences. Since the stakes are so high, each person owes it to themselves to carefully examine and weigh the evidence before making a conclusion. We began by identifying 12 presumptive facts regarding the investigation and exploration of Jesus' resurrection. In part 1, we discussed the presumptive fact that Jesus was crucified and Jesus died. In part 2, we addressed the fact that Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb, that Jesus' disciples were scattered abroad after Jesus' crucifixion, that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death, and that a large number of the disciples, both separately and together, said that they saw 
touched and ate together with Jesus after his death. In part two and three, we began to see how each of Jesus' disciples were psychologically transformed after his resurrection. In part four, we began to ask what theory best fits all of the twelve presumptive facts. So far, we have examined two of the seventeen theories and or allegations which generally represent the typical theories posed throughout history to explain Jesus' resurrection. The theories examined so far were, 1. The disciples stole Jesus' body and preached Jesus as having raised from the dead. 2. The Jewish leaders took Jesus' body. Now, so far, the theories presented have failed to provide an effective explanation and have been found to be logically deficient. In this episode, we continue examining the remaining theories posited. Theory number three, the Roman authorities took Jesus' body. Here again, this theory, like the other 16 theories, consciously or unconsciously stipulates to the truthful premise of the following facts. A. Jesus was a historical person. B. Jesus was crucified. C. Jesus died. D. Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb. And E. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. Now, as before, it would not make logical sense otherwise. Because if Jesus had not been alive as a historical person, then he could not have been crucified and died, and there would have been no body to take. Likewise, it would be impossible for the Romans to take Jesus' body if they didn't know where his body was. Lastly, making the allegation that the Romans, or anyone else for that matter, took Jesus' body would be pretty hollow if Jesus' tomb was still occupied by his corpse. Thus, all five of these presumptive facts must exist as a factual basis for the above excuse to even be lodged as a potential valid explanation. More importantly, we have a theory posed by skeptics designed ostensibly to explain or dismiss Jesus' resurrection. At the outset of examining this particular theory, the theory thus far substantiates five of the twelve presumptive facts presented. As we continue our examination of this theory, we encounter the following problems. A. History tells us that the primary concern of the Romans was to support and maintain the peace and security of the empire. Anyone or anything who posed a credible threat to the empire could be sure that one or more authorities would deal with that threat summarily. In this case, the closest, most powerful Roman authority to Jesus was Pilate. No Roman subordinate to Pilate would be taking Jesus' body without consulting Pilate. Given the fact that Pilate had just sentenced Jesus to capital punishment via crucifixion and had authorized an official guard to Jesus' tomb to guarantee that Jesus' body not be taken, 
it would be counterproductive to take Jesus' body and thus undermine every goal they set out to accomplish. If Pilate or any other Roman authority took Jesus' body and Caesar found out that the ensuing strife and drama of the Christian church was made possible by someone who was supposedly loyal to Caesar, then it would be safe to say that that Roman would find themselves on a long walk on a short pier. Consequently, keeping Jesus' deceased body in the tomb in perpetuity would be synonymous with keeping Roman order and peace and would stave off any further outbursts by Jesus' disciples or by zealots interested in using Jesus as a pawn of their goals to restore Jewish autonomy. The second problem is again that the Romans, or anyone else taking Jesus' body, fails to take into account the claims and the transformation of the disciples and many others who claim to have seen Jesus alive again. The truth be told, the theory that the Romans took Jesus' body flies in the face of the remaining presumptive facts in almost the exact same way as theory number two, that the Jewish leaders took Jesus' body. C. If one or more of the Roman authorities took Jesus' body, then we would expect to see that Roman authority or authorities looking to find Jesus' body and produce his rotting corpse the moment that anyone began claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead in order to disprove such claims. Failure to do so would make the Roman authority or authorities complicit in the undermining of Roman rule and ultimately of Caesar's office. The Romans had the authority and manpower to do so, yet nowhere do we read any claim by the Romans that they had done so. The only explanation is that they could not do so because they had not taken Jesus' body, because the tomb was already empty. In all, when evaluating the allegation and or theory that the Romans took Jesus' body, we find that this explanation provides no motive to answer why any of the Roman authorities would want to engage in an act which serves to undermine Roman authority and sets the stage for reoccurring rebellion, civil disobedience, political problems, and anarchy. Because of this theory's inconsistencies and insufficiencies, this theory likewise fails to provide an effective explanation and is therefore logically deficient. Theory number four, the women went to the wrong tomb. Like the other 16 theories, this theory consciously or unconsciously stipulates to the truthful premise of the following presumptive facts. A. Jesus was a historical person. B. Jesus was crucified. C. Jesus died. D. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. Thus, these four presumptive facts must exist as a factual basis for the above excuse to even be lodged as a potential valid explanation. In this case, it would not make logical sense otherwise because if 
Jesus had not been alive as a historical person, then he could not have been crucified and died there, and there would be no reason for the women or anyone else to go to any tomb, much less allegedly to the wrong one. However, with this theory we must place a temporary caveat to the fifth presumptive fact that Jesus' body was placed in a known accessible tomb. The reason is that if Jesus' tomb was known and accessible, then according to the logic of this theory, one of two things would have to be true. 1. Jesus' tomb was known and accessible, but the women accidentally went to the wrong tomb. 2. Jesus' tomb was known and accessible to everyone but the women. Now let's play out each of these possibilities to see how this theory affects the fifth presumptive fact. We will also see whether this theory tends to substantiate or create problems regarding the remaining 12 presumptive facts. 1. Jesus' tomb was known and accessible, but the women accidentally went to the wrong tomb. The problems with this theory are as follows. A. Under this premise... We would not only have to assume that the women went to the wrong tomb, but ever since then, every other person who went to the tomb also went to the wrong tomb. Either that or everyone just said, oh, and no one ever bothered to go to any tomb, but instead just believed what the women said without checking for themselves. B. If the women went to the wrong tomb, then this did not preclude others from going to the right tomb and getting the story straight. C. Assuming the women and everyone else went to the wrong tomb, there would still have been the correct tomb in existence containing Jesus' corpse. As soon as the religious establishment, Pilate, or anyone else with a vested interest heard the stories about Jesus' resurrection, they would have every opportunity, motivation, reason, and means to locate the correct tomb and to produce Jesus' corpse in order to quell the growing rumors of the resurrection. This would especially be true given the fact that all of the questions, debate, and drama over this issue was occurring in the heart of the place where all the witnesses and all the evidence were central and current. D. The claims of the disciples and others go far beyond basing their faith upon second-hand information by the women. The disciples and others claim to have personally seen, talked to, touched, and eaten with the resurrected Jesus. Thus, the claims of Christianity were not limited simply to an empty tomb or the wrong tomb. E. The second-hand claims of others based upon confusion by the women as to the tomb would not by itself be sufficient to provide the impetus for the kind of transformation to the disciples and so many others. Human nature logically dictates that given only the claims of women whose testimony was at that time historically considered legally unreliable would cause any self-respecting Jew to be skeptical and dismissive on that basis. Secondly, the disciples and others would likely have been skeptical and dismissive since the assumption would be to accuse the women of being distraught 
and emotional due to Jesus' death. F. Saul and others like him were avowed enemies who were loyal to Judaism and who were hostile towards those who were not. Saul and others could not be accused of being weak-minded or equally swayed by sentiment or emotion. Saul was versed in both the law of Judaism and the Roman culture. Men like Paul would be bound to demand more than second-hand information to change their lives and their livelihoods. 2. Jesus' tomb was known and accessible to everyone but the women. The problems with this theory are as follows. A. If we assume that the women never knew, forgot, or got lost, then we would have to conclude that either they never found any tomb and gave up, or that they found an empty tomb which was the wrong tomb. Now, if they never found any tomb, then they would be returning with that report unless they wanted to lie. However, lying would be a somewhat foolish decision since they had to know that anyone else could at any moment decide to look for and find, check the tomb for Jesus' corpse for themselves, and then the women would be humiliated and embarrassed, not to mention being called liars. If they found the wrong tomb, then we would ha also have to assume that everyone else who had the ability to check, including the other disciples, the Jewish religious authorities, the Roman authorities, and the general public, never bothered to look for Jesus' tomb themselves, despite all of the motivation and drama in the coming months. B. The women, the disciples, and others did not limit themselves to the sole claim of an empty, lost, inaccessible, or forgotten tomb. The claims were unanimous in saying that many disciples, in addition to the women, saw Jesus' tomb, the correct tomb, and that the tomb was empty. Further, the women, the disciples, and many hundreds claimed to see, hear, and touch the risen Jesus on repeated occasions. C. The disciples and many others were psychologically transformed in their lives. These changes were too significant and profound to be explained by this many people of different walks being transformed by secondhand information. The fact that these same people lied about seeing, hearing, and touching Jesus would tend to contradict the kind of moral and character transformation which was evident for the remainder of their lives despite persecution, arrests, trials, suffering, torture, and death. D. Given the fact that all of these events, before, during, and after, occurred in the bosom of Jerusalem where all the witnesses and all the evidence existed, it would have been virtually impossible for anyone to proclaim Jesus' resurrection when there was every opportunity, means, and motive to have easily disproved such claims. Thus, in all, when evaluating the allegation and or theory that the women went to the wrong tomb, we find that this explanation provides no motive to answer why none of the percipient authorities, witnesses, and involved parties would take the obvious and simple act of locating the correct tomb, which was known and available, enter and produce Jesus' body to implode all the claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. 
Because of this theory's inconsistencies and insufficiencies, this theory likewise fails to provide an effective explanation and is therefore logically deficient. Theory number five. Jesus resuscitated after having swooned and came forth. Once again, this theory and its various offshoots, sometimes euphemistically referred to as the quote-unquote swoon theory, like the other 16 theories, consciously or unconsciously stipulates to the truthful premise of the following presumptive facts. A. Jesus was a historical person. B. Jesus was crucified. C. Jesus' body was placed in a known accessible tomb. Now what is different in this case is that the proponents of this theory would have us believe that Jesus never died. Instead, Jesus merely fainted or quote-unquote swooned under the stress and strain of his crucifixion. Later, after Jesus was placed inside the tomb, presumably the coolness of the tomb and so forth allowed him to regain consciousness. In the end, this theory also concedes that the tomb was in fact empty three days later. However, that was not because he resurrected from death to life, but rather because he simply revived and resumed his life. However, as we shall see, there are some major problems regarding this theory. 1. First of all, if you were with us with part 1 of this episode, you hopefully got a glimpse of the utter horror and torture which Jesus went through before and during his crucifixion. Let's remember, Jesus was sleep-deprived, hungry, dehydrated, and cold. He went through six trials, being abandoned by his best friends, spit upon repeatedly, slapped, struck with fists, sticks, bruised, beaten, accused, mocked, had his beard ripped out, beaten with a Roman flagrum until unrecognizably bloody, tearing away flesh, tearing into the muscles. He had a crown of thorns forced around his scalp was forced to carry a heavy wooden cross over his damaged back. He had his wrists and ankles pierced through with nails into the cross and was hung by his own weight, fighting for several hours, seesawing up and down in order to overcome suffocation. He had his side pierced by a Roman spear all the way through to the heart and was finally lain in a dark tomb on a cold rock without any medical help. The idea that Jesus somehow survived all of this, and then in a pitch-black tomb, revived out of a coma, and finds himself afraid in the dark. He somehow extricates himself from 75 to 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes which he was embalmed in, He then places his nail-pierced hands on the very heavy 2,000 to 4,000 pound stone, pushing it uphill, breaking the seals, pushes it out of the way and exits. Then he is met by the guards who say, uh, perhaps, who do you think you are, pal? Where are you going? And he answers, uh, maybe, I'm out of this hole. He then beats up and overcomes the guards, after which he walks blocks, if not miles, on pierced and wounded feet, 
with a hole in his side to his heart in order to find his disciples. With all of these things considered, I would submit that this theory surpasses the believability of the simple claim that Jesus resurrected from the dead. 2. If somehow we can believe the above set of circumstances, we now have to consider yet more impossible claims compounding themselves into absurdity. In this case, under this theory, we are asked to believe that once Jesus managed to revive and escape the tomb, that he went on in his condition, which would have been critical, if not terminal, to meet the disciples and others, to somehow convince them that he had, in reality, died and come back to life. So we have to place ourselves in the position of the disciples and imagine this scenario. Here we are, depressed and upset over Jesus' presumable death by crucifixion and the placement of his corpse in a sealed tomb three days ago. As we commiserate and comfort each other over our loss, lo and behold, here comes this bloody, bruised, beaten, and mortally injured shell of a body, hardly more than a gory mass of what used to be a man. This specter of a human being stumbles, hobbles, crawls, and scrapes his way in his deteriorating condition to somehow find the disciples. Finally, this gravely wounded man with a hole in his chest, who would have needed a wheelchair if not a gurney, manages to find his disciples, whereupon he collapses on the ground to identify himself and greet them. He is then somehow able to walk around for the next 40 days instead of calling 911, looking for a doctor, or checking into intensive care. During these 40 days, he is able to convince and inspire his disciples to believe that he had been resurrected. Imagine, he comes to the house where the disciples are staying and knocks on the door. Peter opens the door and sees Jesus hunched over in his pathetic and mutilated state and says, Wow! I can't wait to have a resurrected body just like yours. The average person must ask, how likely is it that Jesus would have convinced his disciples in his wounded condition that he was the risen Lord of life in an immortal body? Alive? Barely. Risen? No way. 3. We are supposed to believe that during these 40 days, while Jesus and many others walked about in Jerusalem proclaiming that Jesus had risen again, that the Jewish religious leaders, the Romans, and the other antagonists never saw Jesus in his condition, or perhaps we are supposed to believe that they heard about Jesus' resurrection, but during the 40 days no one was able or interested in finding Jesus in his crippled condition. Nobody was able or willing to grab Jesus and either finish the job they had begun or parade Jesus around showing everyone the reality that Jesus and his disciples were lying. Are we to assume that there was no motivation to demonstrating that Jesus was not resurrected? There would have been great benefit for the Jews and the Romans in recapturing Jesus and showing that he was in fact mortally wounded, horribly injured, and damaged. All of this would demonstrate that Jesus was hardly a candidate for worship as a resurrected Messiah. But they didn't do this. Why? 4. 
We are further supposed to believe that Jesus' condition, having survived as a disfigured man who presumably died after 40 days, provided the circumstances necessary for the disciples and others to be psychologically transformed for the remainder of their lives despite persecution, arrests, trials, suffering, torture, and death. In all, when evaluating the allegation and or the theory that Jesus resuscitated after having swooned and came forth from the tomb, we find that this explanation is many times more improbable and incredible than the simple proclamation that Jesus rose from the dead. It provides no explanation as to how Jesus would accomplish this and credibly transform his disciples and many others. It gives no answer as to why the percipient authorities, witnesses, and involved parties would take the obvious and simple act of noticing Jesus and taking action against him and the rest. Because of the tremendous inconsistencies and insufficiencies of this theory, this theory likewise fails to provide an effective explanation and is therefore logically deficient. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part six of this series. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in